Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. When shall we three meet again, in thunder, lightning, or in rain? Some of the most famous words ever written by Shakespeare, and they're spoken, of course, by one of the witches in Macbeth. And witches and witchcraft, these are the theme of today's episode of The Rest is History. But wait, before we go any further, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Dominic Sandbrook, how are you doing? Sledgehammer wit, Tom, as ever. I'm very well, thank you. And you? <laughs> how are you? The rapier sharp slash. <laughs> um, so, Dominic, a, f- a fan of the dark arts? A practitioner, perhaps? Uh, no. <laughs> I've got a lot of dark arts stuff in my house because my son is massively into J.K. Rowling. I know J.K. Rowling is persona non grata in some quarters, but this is definitely a Rowling-friendly household, so my house is stuffed with witchcraft and wizardry and all that sort of carry-on. Brilliant. Well, that, that should give us something to talk about. It'd be good, to, perhaps, to get on to, to Harry Potter at some point in this podcast. But um, we're very honoured to be joined today by our special guest, Susanna Lipscomb, star of TV, who also happens to be Professor of History at Roehampton University, the author of a series of award-winning books on early modern history, including, most recently, The Voices of Neem, about women, sex and marriage in Reformation Languedoc. But she's also the author, more germanely for our purposes, of the recently published Ladybird Book of Witchcraft. <laughs> Susie, so good to have you. <laughs> Great title. <laughs> yes, we've, we've moved on slightly How from Jack it? and Jill with uh, Witchcraft. <laughs> well, it's a great series. I, I've also written one, so I, I know that it's uh, the very highest quality scholarship. Um, and Witchcraft, did was this a subject that you kind of got into on the back of your interest in early modern history, or was it the other way around? It's sort of the other way around, because my... Uh, supervisor for my doctorate was Robin Briggs, who's a great scholar of witchcraft and looked at uh, the witches, the trials of witches in Lorraine, particularly, which is one of the um, independent duchies that was particularly uh, keen on executing witches. And my college advisor was Lyndall Roper, who's worked on witchcraft and the witch craze in Germany. So, I mean, I was I barely evaded witchcraft, frankly, as my personal um, studies. So it's sort of not surprising at all that I've come round to it in the end. So there's so much to get into. Um, and I guess the big question, Susie, is, is witchcraft a kind of constant in human history? Have we always believed in witches? I mean, I'm guessing you'll say kind of yes and no, will you? Yes, we have always believed in witches, it seems. So the earliest case that I've come across is, and this is far more Tom's territory than mine, is ancient Greece. So it's about 330 BC. There was an alleged witch called Theorus of Lemnos. And so she was prosecuted for casting incantations um, and using harmful drugs. And then yeah. we we see it appear again and again throughout time. Basically, 
time is punctuated by there being witchcraft cases, whether you're talking 30 BC or, um, uh, you know, just after the, you know, uh, AD BC, or don't call it anymore anymore, but you know what I mean, but just the um, yeah. into um, the modern era. And, um, and we see this throughout the Anglo-Saxons, we see it in medieval period. And so the period I've particularly worked on is where those beliefs become uh, prosecutions, where there's a particularly serious uh, craze, I suppose, um, and people are concerned with trying to persecute witches under law yeah. and then have them executed. But so they've been the, with us throughout time. So is the, is the big shift um, from thinking witchcraft was fine and it was just something that people did, it might be a bit weird, but it was kind of carrying on to thinking that it was sinful and must be extirpated at all costs i don't think it was ever thought to be fine i think it was always thought to be transgressive but i think the shift is towards seeing it i suppose as not just doing something harmful but that being infused with a diabolic intent that a pact has been made with the devil so that it is a form of heresy right i, th- I think that's the shift yeah because i i i was wondering about heresy because uh, famously the middle ages um described by r.a moore as a, a persecuting society um and the definite sense you get with heresy, and we, Dominic, we talked about this in relation to the, the supposed Cathars. We did. Is that y- you get um, kind of friars, learned scholars who go back to classical antiquity and kind of plunder it for source material. Um, and then they kind of create a package and then they project it onto people and it kind of catches fire. And I guess the... Is what happens with witchcraft that essentially, what is it, it's by the kind of the the 14th century and then really into the 15th century, that the church starts to conflate sorcery with heresy. And so the assumption becomes that if you are having dealings with the devil, then in a sense you are no longer Christian and therefore you must be targeted for that reason. Yeah, so it's the end of the 15th century and it particularly happens through... The, the famous book Malleus Maleficarum, with the Hammer of the Witches, which was written by a German Dominican monk called Heinrich Kramer. And he reproduced a papal bull that had recently been published that said that witches were heretics. So it's exactly that that's happening in terms of elevating the threat of witchcraft from being a local sorcerer um, to being something that is um, on a kind of... Uh, this transcendental level where you you know there's you know this absolute threat to um souls as well as life lives and so i think that's crucial and then the other shift that happens is that once that has the weight of the church or supposed weight of the church behind it then we see it starting to be accepted uh, at an elite level and indeed we even get demonologies uh, written by members of the elites including a reigning monarch and we end up with seeing it becoming a crime under law. So there's kind of two shifts. So it's become, become seen as heresy and then become seen as a crime. And that's a crucial thing that has to happen in the 16th century. And why does it happen where it does? So obviously Germany is, you mentioned Linda Roper and she wrote that great book about witchcraft in Germany. 
and in in England we think of it as you know the Witchfinder General Matthew Hopkins, and we obviously Witchcraft of Scotland, and then the American Colonies, the Crucible, and all that kind of carry on. Um, but I'm not aware that it's such a big deal in you know Spain or Italy or something. Is it is it places where I mean, to a sort of layman, it would look like it's places with a lot of Protestants. Is that mm. right? It certainly does happen in places with a lot of Protestants, and I think it helps, uh, as it were, <laughs> I think in areas where uh, there's a particularly kind of hot form of Protestantism, so in England it becomes to be called Puritanism, it means that people have a kind of piebald mentality. They see the world in black and white. They see the devil at work everywhere. And it's certainly true that in areas like Scotland, um, in East Anglia and Essex, there and in parts of Germany, we are we do have a particularly sort of inflamed, um, no pun intended, culture around pro- Protestantism, and um, so that is true. But there are trials, although they're fewer. There are trials in Catholic areas. So, um, for example, uh, I mentioned Lorraine, the Duchy of Lorraine, which is which is broadly Catholic, and there are tri- there are many trials there. Um, there aren't that many in France, about 3,000 over the period, which is, is not that many, but there are some in Spain. So there are trials in Catholic areas. It's not quite so clear-cut as just being Protestant. And I think it's because in this period, whether you're Protestant or Catholic, you're concerned about um, what is wrong in terms of faith. That The Reformation has produced this kind of atmosphere of um, angst, um, about the end days, about whether the devil is at work. Perhaps it's slightly more the case amongst Protestants, but Catholics are certainly concerned about it as well. Well, Susie, there's, there's a, a brilliant comment by Carlos Eyre who says that um, that hunting witches was actually the most intensely ecumenical event of the Reformation era, which is a kind of sober way of putting it. And he kind of talks about, you know, it's it's almost one of the few aspects of theology where Catholics are reading Protestants and and vice versa and i i was wondering i mean essentially the kind of the real peak of the witchcraft craze is the latter half of the 16th century moving into the 17th century and that's also when confessional identities among protestants and among catholics in the wake of the counter reformation are really intensifying and again as kind of a counter effect of that is that you start to get warfare between them religious war is there a link between the prevalence of witchcraft, the growth, the anxiety about witchcraft and the sense that presumably both Catholics and Protestants have when they're going to war, that they're engaged in some kind of cosmic battle between good and evil? There certainly is. There certainly is this connection that actually they're living in a time of anarchy, spiritual anarchy. And, you know, pretty much no one in the 16th century uh, and early 17th century thinks that toleration is a good idea. You know, they th- they think there is a, there's a right way and there's a wrong way and you need to root out that which is wrong. So it's certainly, that's the background to it. I think we have to be careful that it's quite, just to prevent against thinking this is Protestants attacking Catholics, very few instances where that's the case or vice versa. But generally speaking, it's that as that lovely quote makes clear, it's something that everybody's doing at the time that witches are thought to be a threat overall because people are much more concerned about evil at work in the world. Um, they they differ on their def- their definition of which particular version of faith is correct, but they do think there's a right and the wrong way and witches are clearly on the wrong side. 
Susie, let's talk a bit about witches themselves. So the sort of standard view of the witches, I guess, is that they are women, older women, childless widows um, who are marginal in their village. And it tends to be villages, right, rather than big towns. Um, and now is, that all, is that right or is it, is it more complicated than that? I mean, do you ever get a male witch, for example? So there's a lot to unpack there. So, yes, it tends to be villages rather than towns because most people live in villages. Uh, right, so you don't have that many <laughs> um, right. proportion. Like like ninety five percent of the population or more lives in villages and and, and small places under four hundred people. Um, and it's true that most witches that are convicted are women, and they're older women. Uh, crucially, they're menopausal or postmenopausal. They are often widowed. They have ceased to have children. They're no longer fertile, and those are really important things. Um, and there are lots of reasons for why they're old, for why it's older women being attacked, um, but it's not just women. So, uh, for example, um, it, particularly during the severe panics, sixteen um, eleven, uh, for example, in Elwangen in Germany, there are four hundred and thirty people who are executed as witches and they are men and women they include priests they include a judge who's protested about his wife's arrest um, sometimes witches and this is pr- pretty terrible uh, deviation as it were from the stereotype are, are, are children so um, again in Germany in the 1620s in Würzburg uh, there are I think it's a, a, more than 40 children who are executed as children oh, that happens gosh. also happens in the Basque country well Happens in Sweden. Have, have you seen the... Um, uh, it was a friend of mine made a film for Dispatches on Channel 4 about 10 years ago. Uh, I think it was called Savoring Africa's Witch Children. I mean, we're, we're, we're massively moving forwards now, but this is, this is um, in, in, in southern Nigeria, which, where, of course, it's become um, a very radical form of Protestantism, but it's fused with local beliefs in spirits and demons. And there, there's a whole kind of... Um, strain of evangelical protestantism that says that um that witches are everywhere and that children are particularly prone to being um witches and children who get accused of it get kind of at best expelled from the family at worst tortured to death um and i wondered you know is is that showing that we're talking about something that is universal and constant or is it is it the fact that um it's the protestantism it's the christianity that is inspiring this or what what's going on there it, can we kind of trace the patterns all the way through history do you think it's a difficult thing to answer i mean it's certainly true that we have there have been many witch hunts in recent times um so um in the late 80s early 90s there were 200 lynchings of suspected witches in south africa um there have been the in um 2001 in the democratic republic of congo there were unofficially officially it's sort of the figures around 800 unofficially we're told it's more into running into the thousands um uh witches killed uh, you know murdered by lynching mobs as it were saudi arabia created an anti-witchcraft unit in 2009 so it's so it, and, and we've seen it more recently even you know wherever you look around the world nepal colombia indonesia nigeria so it's a constant for sure and i suppose even in in um in britain uh, i mean dominic you may, i don't know if you've researched this, the the ritual satanic abuse yeah, scandals the 80s fears. Cleveland, yeah yeah so was 
in a sense, that's a kind of witchcraft scare, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose you could probably argue that. I mean, there's clearly, I, I, well, I don't know, maybe Susie would disagree with this, but I think there's a, there is a human constant, isn't there, to look for scapegoats. And, it, and there are particular figures in society that end up being these folk devils. So older women, children, classically, uh, and teenagers tend to be seen as folk devils um, generation after generation. So maybe, disturbingly, there is this, I don't know. Susie, let me ask you a question, um, a slightly weird question. If you were accused of being a witch, what's your best way of getting out of it? So how would you escape? Let me just first come to that point about teenagers and old women. And it, I think perhaps the constant with children and teenagers and older women is that they're people that it's harder to control. I wonder if that's something to do with it. Um, how do you best escape? Actually, sometimes you can escape by confessing to it. It depends where you are. So it depends on the jurisdiction you're operating in. In some places, people got away with it if they confessed and repented. That happened in Salem in New England, um, the trials in the 1692 outbreak. Um, and it's those who refuse to confess that died quite often. Um, uh, but often actually by naming other people, that might be a way out of it. So, <laughs> so That's kind of who, depressing, isn't it? But it's like who else Russia turned up in the 1930s or something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you can, if you can name people who were in large numbers who were there at your sabbat or whatever they've come up with as an idea, because quite often it's the interrogators' ideas that are being reproduced by those who are being interrogated, then maybe you've got a chance of being let off. And was the ducking stool, was that a, a real thing or is that a, a kind of children's history book? invention it's a real thing but not for witches it's a real thing that's used uh, for scolds so in exactly the same period that we have a rise in the number of people being executed as witches we see uh, basically there's a great there's a sort of how do we put it intensification of patriarchy in this period of time and so women who speak out who um are you know cantankerous or who are gossips or all these sort of things can be ducked as scolds but it's basically it's just a confusion what we do have is what's called swimming which is in england um are swam <laughs> uh, um which uh, which is um something that james the first writes about in his demonology which is the following you've got your witch male or female you strip them naked you tie their uh, thumbs to their toes um, and you put them in a river to see if they're going to uh, sorry that's the dog you put them in a river to see if they're going to sink your familiar or float. <laughs> yeah yeah my, my, my familiars are nearby um, so you if they are innocent they will sink and you know you hope they're going to be pulled out in time to not drown and if they float they are a witch and the, the logic is that the baptism um, their baptism um, in waters uh, no longer uh, holds because they have turned to the devil and so the waters will reject them. Right, OK, so, so on that, that thing of, the, of, of um, rejecting your baptism and uh, you become a worshipper of the devil, this idea that you are, are leaving the Christian faith and that you, are, in a sense, are taking up another faith, um, there was a very popular theory that this was an expression of a kind of ancient paganism that had survived Christianity. Uh, and I always remember um, my parents, when I was a child, had a book of kind of gazetteer to folklore. 
and they had a wonderful thing about the um, the death of William II in the New Forest, and this he'd been shot by an arrow, and this supposedly was part of a, a, a satanic ritual, kind of Wicker Man um, style. Which, a Wicker Man, yes, which I'd always, which I'd always wanted to, <laughs> I'd always wanted to believe. But um, Susie, it's not true, is it? There was no such um, pagan cult lasting into the early modern period that uh, witches were belonging to. Well, I can say with great certainty, there's no evidence to prove it. <laughs> I can't say it's not true, <laughs> right. but I can, okay. <laughs> I yes. can say there's yes. uh, there's perilous little to make the case for it. But Susie, that then raises the question: um, Were there so were any of the witches actually guilty? I.e., were any of the cases kind of banged to rights? They actually had been consorting. I mean, obviously, they hadn't been consorting with the devil. But did they think they were witches? I.e., had they been doing spells and did they have a, you know, a familiar and all this sort of business? Well, this is the amazing thing about the witchcraft trials is exactly this question. So um, many of us looking at this see this as, as one historian described it, as a, you know... Um, a, a crime with a hole at the centre of it. There is, there is, you know, there is nothing there, um, and they're not doing anything. But clearly, some of these people did think that they were acting as witches. At least that's what the that's what the confessions <laughs> seem to suggest. Now, obviously, there are lots of confessions that are extracted under torture, but then there are also confessions that are freely given, and some of those do seem to suggest that. And we can psychologise about what's going on there. But some of them do seem to suggest that people are saying they've met with the devil. And some of the interesting work, um, again, actually, uh, from Linda Roper, has looked at the idea that what we're seeing is their fantasies, that quite a lot of the time these are people who are poor and dispossessed and um, who have very little. And they fantasise about meeting with the devil and him you know, freeing them from hunger and from want and from poverty and, um, you know, lots of feasting goes on with the devil um, uh, because they're hungry or or lots of sex because these people are untouched. And so that actually what we're seeing there is an idea about what they lack. And and this is a period um, when the, the Little Ice Age is kicking in, um, particularly in the 17th century. It's a period of, of cold and therefore of famine and therefore of hunger. And do you think, there might, is there a connection between um, which, the escalation of witchcraft trials and, and the fact that, that basically Europe is under massive stress at the time? Yes. Climactically. Absolutely. Um, There's certainly the case that we've got... I think the thing about witchcraft is, is, it's, is this, it is the sort of perfect storm, you know, it's an overused phrase, but it, it, it comes from all sorts of things happening at once, that you do have this extraordinary socioeconomic conditions where people are hungry. Where in the 1590s, you have four years where it basically rains nonstop and there are, the, the harvests are destroyed and there's famine and um, you know, bread prices shoot up. And whilst we can't do any sort of... Uh, uh, bored causality between you know the, they're hungry and then the people are accused of witchcraft clearly this is the climate both literally and sort of more metaphorically in which um, witchcraft is happening it, witchcraft accusations are happening and Robin Briggs who I mentioned earlier did really good work on examining the details of neighborhood accusations so much of this is happening um, between neighbors um, between people who are 
who are hungry and envious, between people who are being selfish and not operating as community norms say they should. Um, one of the classic scenarios that uh, Keith Thomas and Alan McFarlane came up with was has been called the refusal guilt syndrome. So basically you have a probably older woman, somebody who is in need, going to the door of a richer Um, not particularly rich, but richer householder um, and asking for arms. And maybe in England, because they've started giving, you know, arms through the parish, they think they've already done enough. So they turn this person away. She mutters under her breath as she leaves. And then, you know, a cow gets uh, sick or a child dies and they accuse her of witchcraft. So there's a lot of um, Uh, projection onto these poorer people that they must be angry Uh, there's a uh, the sense that they must be this you know uh, acting against the richer people because it's about guilt so um so i think the fact that people are hungry and angry makes a big difference and i suppose also it, it kind of provides a reassurance that there is an explanation for these awful things happening rather than just you know shit happens um, anyway, on that note, shit happens, which could really be the, the that motto. That should be our title. That should be it. We, yes, <laughs> we, we missed that out. Um, let's take a break. And when we come back, we will return to the dark arts with Susie. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity super fan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who help shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome back to uh, The Rest is History. We are talking witches and witchcraft and we've got all your questions. We're about to go through them, but very selfishly, I've got one question that I I would like to put to Susie before we get on to yours. Um, And that is really to go back to the gender of witches. Because one thing, you talked about the Malleus Maleficarum um, and and there witches are described as as female. It's a a female noun. Um, But in in the Vulgate, the Latin version of um, the Bible that people would have read in the Middle Ages. Um, the, the famous line that's translated in the King James Bible, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live in Exodus. That word, it's, it's maleficor, so it's a, a masculine. And I'm, again, just why is it that, for, over the course of the Middle Ages into the early modern period, there seems to be this evolution of thinking of witches as masculine and then becoming female? What, what what's going on there? So the Malleus Maleficarum was was a particularly uh, misogynistic text. So it, the writer conceived of witches as female, and that's the sort of dominant theme. And it you know it, it would have been as even for its time surprisingly misogynistic. Uh, but what we see is a belief that both men and women can be witches, um, and in some places there are more. Uh, men accused of witchcraft than women. Um, In Iceland, for example, 92% of those accused of witchcraft in the 17th century are male. Uh, In Russia, it's something 68%. Estonia, it's very high. Normandy, the males outnumber females three to one. 
but elsewhere it's the it, the it shifts and it's more like four out of five witches are female because whilst both men and women are thought uh, capable of being seduced by the devil women are weaker it's thought more credulous more likely to fall into sin particularly sexual sin it's thought in this period of time and therefore more likely to um, be persuaded away from the truth and are the men that are accused are they sort of marginal men so are they kind of loners and oddballs or or, or people on the fringe or, or could they be people at the center of the community in some places they are more marginal so the russian cases appear to be looking at people who are shepherds or vagrants or people who are moving around wanderers um, so we do have some of that marginality but we also do see instances of very mainstream men accused as well so how does Dr. D, Elizabeth I's, you know, who's busy looking at angels in, <laughs> or doing all kinds of stuff, how, how does he get away with it? I suppose he's a, a sort of wizard uh, as opposed to a witch. He, so the definition of witch by this point is um, mal- that you're practising maleficarum, you're, that you're doing evil through magic, and he's not doing evil. <laughs> um, he's, so white, white magic is OK? Yes, I mean, there's a but certain problematic isn't it it's still problematic and the line between the two is is very easy to cross um i suppose the fact that he's got the patronage of elizabeth the first helps um i mean and he's yeah. operating to just much, much like elizabeth the first did i'm um, very interested in alchemy he's very interested in uh trying to find the philosopher's stone um as glenn parry's written about D and shown that Elizabeth I had alchemical laboratories in her palaces. So I think that he's pursuing a, a sort of magic, as it were, that is state-approved. And because it's open, I suppose he's not hiding anything. Is it? It's not like he's doing it, you know, in the back of a cupboard. I mean, he's sort of... Isn't it one of those things that if you try to cover it up or whatever, it looks more dodgy than if you're, say, well, I'm an alchemist, I'm, I'm casting spells. I'm Deal sure that's it. right. And I think it's about his his level of power in society so much of this comes down to it's those who don't have power who are accused of trying to do something with this um illegally gotten power okay so let's let that brings right, up a good question actually from wenzel rosner and he or he i assume it's he i don't really know what wenzel is i don't know anything about this person anyway um wenzel says <laughs> would the average woman have been worried about being accused of witchcraft. So in other words, are you living in fear of witch hunters? Um, or, or could you just go about your daily life, you know, without assuming it would never happen to you? I suppose it depends who and when and where, uh, because there would have been certain periods where the culture around witchcraft, the concerns around witchcraft would have been heightened. And so I think even... Uh, an ordinary woman could be accused. But I do think that witchcraft reputations took time to build up. And sometimes they came from a sort of family tradition, your you know, family members, grandmother, mother thought to be witches. And it took many accusations. Uh, it didn't, it wasn't on the first time. So because if you think someone's a witch, you don't, you need to be sure before you accuse them, right? They've got, they've got evil magic at their disposal. So, um, Tend it, we tend to find that in the trials we get references to this happened 20 years ago, this happened 10 years ago. 
so whilst people are talking so that means people are talking about witchcraft a lot they're talking about it much more than we have trial cases uh, to show for it because then there's going to be lots of people who don't make it to trial but I think you have to have quite a substantial body of evidence against someone to accuse them so that means that you're going to know whether people are going to think you're a witch or not there's, there's a follow-up on that from a question from Andre. Um, it, are there examples of, of people who are accused of being a witch and presumably convicted only then to get off? So <laughs> basically, once you've, been, once you've been convicted of witchcraft, was, was that it? Um, or did you have a chance of... There are people who aren't convicted and there are people who aren't executed. So there's an in- instance, for example... One of the famous outbreaks in England is the Pendle witches, 1612. And in the same year in Lancashire, also in Lancashire, there are um, what are known as the Salisbury witches. There are three women accused uh, by a 14-year-old girl. And they are. it's discovered that the girl has been coached and the women are set free and uh, acquitted. So there are acquittals. And it's certainly true that... Not everyone is executed, so we think there are about 90,000 people who are prosecuted as witches in this period, and about half of those are executed as witches. So you, it is possible to get away with it, as it were, get away, for, get away with innocence. <laughs> you mentioned the Pendle witch trials, and Cain Carlyle asked a question about that. So Cain says, can you talk about the witch trials and their links with the English Reformation? On a side note, Pendle Hill is a stunning place to go for a lockdown walk. Uh, Sounds suspicious to me. Very suspicious. (laughs) But so the links with the English Reformation. What's all this about? Um, I, I mean, I think there's a lot more going on than links to the English Reformation. There, I suppose, as usual, we've got um, the we've got a background of uh, religious change. We've this is so. Susie, when is this? So this This is is... sixteen twelve. So crucially, I suppose, what's happened is that. James VI of Scotland has become James I of England. Um, And James VI of Scotland had written a book called Demonology in 1597, in which he uh, had given people instructions on how to um, find witches. (laughs) Um, And so we're in a period in which... uh, this Protestant has come to the throne of England and those who are, are thought to be practising witchcraft are being supported at this, you know, seriously elite level, at the, not at the level of the monarch. Um, there is a sense that uh, people can rightfully uh, pursue witches. Um, uh, but there's, and so that's part of the background for Macbeth, isn't it? It is, well, it is absolutely which indeed. Which we opened with. That's right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's written in the 1590s, precisely at the sort of time that, that there are uh, trials in the 1590s uh, in North Berwick, which James I, James VI at the time, oversees. So in 1612, we've got witches who are being accused in that, cli- that climate. But one of them, who's known as Old Demdike, um, is has been accused of being a witch for 50 years. So it's not just about those circumstances. Um, people have been thinking of her as a witch for a long time. And there are lots of associations with some of the um, ideas about witchcraft that we might pursue, like we might think of as even voodoo. For example, Old Demdike makes these clay figures that she sticks pins into uh, um, that will injure the people that she's cursing. 
so it's a really interesting case for England because it's quite large scale for England. It's sort of 12 people accused of witchcraft and 10 of them are executed. And the one I've mentioned, or Demdike, Elizabeth Southerns, dies in jail. Um, it's nothing by comparison to the, the scale of things in Germany, but it's quite big for England. Right, we've got another question from Stephen Clark. Um, going forward now, when, if ever, and why did the British Isles see a significant decline in popular belief in magic and the supernatural? That's a, a huge question. <laughs> um, I, I mean, let's narrow that down. When, when, what's the process by which the belief in witchcraft in not just in Britain, across Europe, starts to fade? So I suppose we could say that in the later 17th century, Um, And early 18th century, we see a changing idea about who can be convicted of witchcraft. It's not quite the same thing as people stopping believing in witchcraft. And I'm not sure that people necessarily did. I suppose we see some evidence of change in terms of what scientific revolution is called, the, the Enlightenment. Perhaps we see changes there. But chiefly what we see evidence of is changes in beliefs about evidence. What are the grounds on which someone can be convicted of witchcraft? And at the same time as we have in America, in the Salem witch trials, we have people who are being convicted on the strength of what are known as spectral evidence, so that those who are accusing them are possessed by the spectre of this witch, and also on their own confessions. We have the evidence from the home assizes, so the court circuit of trials, saying actually um, they're, they're just, there's no evidence against them apart from their own confession and this isn't good enough. And that's a radical change, whereas 60 years earlier it had been the strength of the conve- confession that had convicted witches. So it's more about that than about a change in beliefs. And some people still do believe in witchcraft and we see yeah. some people who yeah. are pursuing witches when it is when the members of the elites won't do it at law, they're going to pursue them with a a mob in the 18th century. But the last person to be executed for witchcraft is in England in 1685 and in Scotland in 1722. Because in the 20th century, I mean, that that idea that there was a kind of pagan, often female-centred religion in the background of the the Christian Middle Ages. Yes. Yes, yes, which I think is pronounced witcher originally. Okay. So kind of really giving you a hint of what's going on there. And that becomes kind of, the, that becomes the basis for 20th century paganism. And I suppose that um, more recently, it, it, most obviously in children's books, so the worst witch first, and then most famously Harry Potter, which is basically, I mean, Hermione Granger is a witch, isn't she? I mean, she's kind of the hero. Yeah. Although Bellatrix Strange is a very kind of stereotypical witch, and she's the baddie. So, you know, she's kind of dark, mad hair, and Helena Bonham Carter, and you can imagine her on a broomstick and stuff. So there's still some of the Hel- old... Helena Bonham Carter's always playing witches, yeah, isn't Yeah, I mean, it's basically her. <laughs> anyway, Susie, go on. Sorry, well, I'm interrupting. No, no, you're not at all. I mean, the interesting thing there is that we do have both the idea of a witch being uh, evil, uh, black magic, as it were, and the idea of white magic that we mentioned earlier. That's what comes out in the 20th century, and it's what comes out in children's stories, so that the very much you can have Hermione Granger, who's a, a witch but using magic for good. And I think that many of the people who identify with being a witch today or practising Wicca... Um, feel that they have a lineage to the witches who were accused in the 16th century 
um, uh, whether that's true or not. And they, particularly one of the things that comes out, I'm often asked whether it's to do with um, being healers, whether they were people who were what was called cunning men and women in the 16th century and who were conjuring up potions, um, um, using herbs to heal people. And certainly many of them may have been that. The evidence is quite hard to follow on that through the trials. But there is a sense today and in the 20th century that surely magic could be used for good. And throwing it even further forward to the present day, to the 21st century, I mean, a question that we got a lot when we advertised this subject, we get it from Neil Page, for example, he says, what's the modern version of the witch trials? And you see this all the time, particularly on social media, people talking about witch hunts and how particular women, we mentioned J.K. Rowling without getting into the kind of ins and outs of that debate, but particular women become stigmatised and scapegoated. And is there any, you know, is uh, obviously we use the terminology of the witch and the witch hunt, but do you think there is any kind of continuity, any parallel, or is it purely a sort of metaphor? I think there are parallels with punishments in the 16th century, though not so much that that was dealt out to witches. I think what we see today... Um, reflects the sort of religious punishments that happened, for example, the Protestant Church uh, in Scotland or in France, um, dealt out shaming punishments. And what we see on social media is this large-scale shaming that happens. Of course, John Ronson wrote about it. And so I suppose that's what we would say when we're talking about a witch hunt today, that somebody's life is made so uncomfortable that they are considered a persona non grata. They don't end up dead but they might end up socially dead Dominic do we have any other questions a rather good good question from Felma Dinkley I see uh, thanks thanks dad um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah Felma Dinkley I can read um, Velma Dinkley says uh, how were riches riches regarded oh come on Tom this oh jeez I've fallen for that one okay how were witches regarded in Roman pagan pre-Christian times Please answer Susie in such a way that Tom cannot add anything of worth to your answer. There's no way I'm doing that in Tom's presence. <laughs> could, I, could, I just very, could I just very quickly answer that one? Please do. Are you um, Velma Dinkley? <laughs> I'm, well, I'm not at liberty to reveal whether I am Velma Dinkley, but it's an excellent question. Um, well, thank you, Velma, for asking that question. So witches um, were an absolute theme of Roman poets. They were obsessed by them. Very hard thing for a Roman poet who doesn't uh, portray a figure of a, a, a sinister old woman who kind of grubs around in graveyards, digging up bones and making potions with ashes. And I'm sure, I mean, I don't know, when, but I'm sure that that this must then feed into what the, the friars and the Dominicans and the Protestant divines are reading and kind of creating from it. But I think also the other thing that um, must feed into the witch scare in the in the 16th century is the sense the romans um and people across the mediterranean have that um there are kind of malign figures so the romans have striges who are kind of female figures who fly through the air and who um feed on 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 the hapless um and like there's an amazing story um told of apollonius of tyana who's a kind of jesus figure he's often parallel to, to jesus who turns up at Ephesus, I think, and there's, uh, Ephesus is plagued by all kinds of hideous witchcraft. And they want ask Apollonius, you know, what's going on? And he points to a, a poor beggar who sat at the gate with his, his, his asking for arms. And Apollonius says, that's the guy, stone him. 
And it's a bit like Monty Python. The beggar says, I'm not. I've nothing to do with it. And everyone says, no, he's not. He's just a harmless beggar. And Apollonia says, stone him. So they all stone him and he gets buried beneath a great pile of stones. And then he turns into an evil dog and howls and dies. So um, I, I think that, you know, there's all kinds of elements there. The idea of flying through the air, the idea that, um, that, that human beings can become animals, the idea of familiars. I guess it's all kind of the, 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 the brew of stuff that scholars in the 16th century can read and then can kind of form this cocktail of, of what a witch should probably be. I mean, do you, think, do you think that's what's happening? I think that's right. I mean, I think what we've got going on it, by the time we get to the 16th century is you've got two discourses about witchcraft. If it, at one level, you've got what the elites are saying, which is absolutely going to be informed by their new humanistic Renaissance study of classical texts and is going to have those elements. And so they're thinking about them flying through the air, maybe backwards on a goat or maybe on a broomstick. And at the same time, you've got what is believed at a village level um, and this, all those neighbourhood accusations and the sort of I was going to say the magic. The the terrible thing that happens is that those two connect. Right? <coughs> That's that those those two b- beliefs, which are really probably quite different, connect up and are thought to be the same thing. Um, I was I wrote yeah. a, a forward for a, a, a book uh, which is called A History of Magic, Witchcraft, and the Occult, and that looks at witchcraft beliefs across the world throughout time. And there are many uh, strands that come out as being similar in different, really radically different societies. But it is interesting to consider the ways in which there is a, a lineage that these ideas are being passed on. And do you think it'll always be with us then? Do you think witches and witchcraft will always be with us? So in this sort of visions of the 27th century that you have, there are no witches, but actually is that unrealistic and we'll always be, you know, looking... Dominic, something beyond... Are you asking Susie to look into the future? I am. That's exactly Are you what I'm tempting doing. her into the practice of witchcraft? That, you know, <laughs> yeah, I have indeed. I shall look into my crystal ball. Um, I think that there will always be things that humans can't explain and that the desire to explain them and to control them will mean that people may well... Um, point to uh, other forces to deal with what is uncertain and what is inexplicable. And I suppose, so that can, in other words, that is a sort of where the witch comes in, you know. Yeah. Um, and the scapegoating as well will surely always, I mean, that's, you know, it's it's part of being human, isn't it, unfortunately? Yes. I mean, it was what we were talking about earlier with the climate change. You've got you somebody's got to be to blame and now perhaps we'd like to think that we wouldn't blame that because we would we would recognize the scientific change but i i think we'd still we still do see scapegoating in different ways so um unless humans change i'm not sure the witches are going to be eradicated really well do you know i think the hurly-burly's done um susie can't thank you enough for um coming on the show and uh all your learning, all your wisdom and scholarship. Um, And thank you, everyone who's listening. Um, A reminder that we're producing two pods a week at the moment. Mondays and Thursdays are the days to keep an eye out for us. See you soon, I hope. Cheerio. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes... 
early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom... How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.